0: Support for this podcast comes from Yotel. Prepare for landing. Yotel, Washington, D.C. arrives on Capitol Hill this fall. Inspired by the luxury of first-class airline travel, guests can expect a high-tech, low-touch experience, like the signature Yotel self-check-in kiosks, which means never having to wait in line to get to your cabin. That's Yotel-speak for rooms. Book your first-class cabin now at yotel.com slash Washington, D.C., and use promo code PARK for free nightly parking.
1: Today on Something You Should Know, how the cost of a medicine affects how well it works to cure you. Then, innovation. There's a lot about innovation that no one talks about and that we don't understand. Innovation has taken on this veneer of it's always making things better. But there's a
2: lot of examples of innovations that have made things worse. Crack cocaine. It's actually a textbook definition, but I don't think anyone would argue that crack cocaine is a positive
1: innovation. Also, a simple way to help you fall asleep the next time you're tossing and turning and physics. It's how GPS works, it's why there are dimples on a golf ball, and how cell phones work. It's all physics. Physics is
0: fundamentally really cool and a lot of fun. It just happens to be useful and important. It runs our entire modern civilization, really. It's all about curiosity and, gee, how does this work?
1: All this today on Something You Should Know. You know, distracted driving is a serious problem on our roadways leading to the deaths of thousands of people and injuries in the hundreds of thousands each year. When you take your eyes and your focus off the road, even for a second, it can be deadly. Not just for you, but for other drivers, as well as pedestrians and bicyclists. Sadly, many Americans use their cell phones while driving, whether it's texting, checking emails, scrolling media feeds, or any other form of distraction. Drivers are putting themselves and others around them at great risk. It's important to know that 48 states ban texting and driving. Also, 21 states prohibit all drivers from using cell phones while driving. Distracted drivers are not only putting people at risk, they're also breaking the law. Look, It's dangerous to use your cell phone behind the wheel. That's why law enforcement officers write tickets and enforce hands-free and anti-texting and driving laws. When you're driving, put down your phone, keep your hands on the wheel, your eyes on the road, and your mind on the task of driving. Remember, you drive, you text, you pay. Brought to you by NHTSA. Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi there, welcome to Something You Should Know. You know, there's nothing more fascinating to me than the human mind, and here's a perfect example. Is it possible that the more expensive a drug, the better it works? Well, according to a study by the American Medical Association, the answer is yes, and it's not because of what's in the drug. It's because of what's in your mind. Here's how the study worked. Participants were given a fictitious drug claiming to be a new fast-acting painkiller made in China. One group was told the pills cost $2.50 each. The other group was told they were $0.10 each and the pills themselves contained no actual medication. The result? 85% of people in the higher-priced group reported pain relief from the more expensive placebo. Only 61% in the discount group felt the effects. Now, there are some other interesting placebo effects with medication. Capsules work better than tablets. Big pills work better than small. The more doses, the better, And the color of the placebo seems to make a difference. And it's all because people believe these things to be true. And that is something you should know. It does seem that we are obsessed by innovation. Everybody talks about innovation. There are a million seminars and books and podcasts and articles about innovation. It seems like everybody wants to innovate something. But is all this desire for innovation really on target? I mean, innovation's great, but the fact is most of us are not and will not be great innovators our entire life. Here's a great example. In a lot of college computer science programs... Those programs tend to steer their students to programming and design, very innovative kind of jobs, even though the overwhelming majority of jobs are in IT and maintenance. Andrew Russell has given all of this a lot of thought. Andrew is a professor of history and the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at SUNY Polytechnic Institute, and he is co-author of the book, The Innovation Delusion, how our obsession with the new has disrupted the work that matters most. Hi Russell. Thanks for having me. So I guess I first want to know why there is all this talk about innovation. Why are we all so interested in innovation in everything?
2: Sure. So the key distinction that we make in the book is between actual innovation, uh, which is a thing, a valuable thing, the introduction of new products or new ways of doing things into the world, versus what we call innovation speak, which is the word salad that accompanies innovation. So all these terms like lean and agile and design thinking and this breathless way of talking about innovation as if it is the cure-all for anything that ails anybody (laughs) at any time, uh, overselling the promises
1: of um, what what technological innovation has delivered. And you make the case that, innovation has actually made us less innovative, that that it's it's actually all this talk of innovation is having the opposite effect.
2: Yeah, we don't assert a causal relationship, um, but we couldn't help but notice um, that there's a correlation. There was an era from the 1870s to the 1970s of really substantial technological innovation. The introduction of electrical power and light, uh, telephone systems, and then uh, digital computers, you know, uh, internal combustion engines, and you you could go on and on about the changes that happened during that century. And then um, some of those fundamental transformations dropped off um, and at the same time, just plugging the term into uh, Google Ngram, you see the use of the term innovation really spike, uh, starting in the 1970s and, and driving through the roof and into the 1990s and the 20th century. And so the conclusion that we drew was that the more people started talking about it, um, it was just kind of curious that the less we could actually see and the less that other uh, economic historians have
1: documented. So... There was a lot of innovation, people talk even more about innovation and the more they talk about it it seems the less there is.
2: Yeah, and, and maybe it's um, you know, <laughs> trying to will new things into existence, but I think the the core message here is that um innovation speak has overwhelmed our society as actual innovation has has just stagnated. Um, there's been the introduction of the internet and all kinds of digital things, but um, to, we, we're historians of technology, my co-author Lee Vinsel and I, so we take a holistic look at technology. And if you think about the technological systems that surround us and that we depend on, they don't look too different from uh, the 1950s. How so? One thing that we point out uh, when we give talks is to ask people to take a look around. So I'd invite uh, people listening to look around. Um, in this room here that I'm sitting in, I'm I'm using a wood table. Uh, the floor is concrete. Um, the doors made of uh, wood and metal. Uh, the glass and the door uh, keeps me warm um, when it gets cold out. All those things were in place, um, you know, well before the, the turn of the 21st century. The big difference is this uh, computer that we're talking through, but even the lines that connect you and I together um, are products of the mid to late 20th century.
1: So maybe we should define the term innovation. What does it mean?
2: Very good question. So um, most people, when they talk about innovation, usually land at Joseph Schumpeter as their bedrock. Schumpeter was an Austrian economist who uh, taught at Harvard for a long time, and uh, he defined innovation. He There's a distinction between invention and innovation. Um, invention is just coming up with something new, and innovation is the application of those ideas uh, for profit. And so it can include a new product, a new way of doing things, uh, a new way of organizing things, um, and he's got five different um, uh, levers for innovation altogether. So um, a good example is the iPhone. All of the technologies that went into the iPhone had been invented, but the reason why it was a successful innovation and a profitable innovation for Apple and for Steve Jobs was their ability to combine those different existing elements into something that people wanted to buy.
1: Well, in that definition, you said, it, you know, it's a new way, but not necessarily a better way. It's just different, right?
2: Yeah. So um, one of the things that we talk about in the book is that is that this conflation between innovation and progress. Um, And so innovation has taken on this veneer of, uh, as we discussed in the beginning, it's always making things better. But um, there's a lot of examples of innovations that have made things worse. Um, One example is crack cocaine. It's actually a textbook definition of what Clayton Christensen referred to as a disruptive innovation. It started at the bottom of the market and moved relentlessly up the market to displace uh, competitors, in in that case, um, powder cocaine. But I don't think anyone would argue that crack cocaine um, is a positive innovation for uh, Americans or American cities. And so there's a number of examples here that I think are useful to think through just to shake loose this connection that people have made between innovation and progress.
1: Well one of the things that interests me is that is all the the, the emphasis on new and better when you know, for example, I mean, I drive down the road and, and where I live, they're having all kinds of problems with all the old water pipes underneath the road keep bursting and the water and the roads flood and there's potholes and, well, I don't know if we need innovation to fix that. We just need to fix it.
2: You're 100% right. And I, I've had the same experience just yesterday, actually, um, nailed the pothole pretty good. One of the ironies here is that there's no magic in any of this stuff. Um, To take care of and fix the things that we rely on, these are generally known problems. Um, What's stopping us is inattention. Uh, So people seem to have this tendency, maybe a natural tendency to focus on the new shiny object and take what's around them for granted. Um, And resources follow attention. So uh, we see politicians or uh, certainly investors or people in the private sector really eager to go after the new latest thing. We see this phenomenon. This is the Silicon Valley phenomenon. This is the digital economy. Um. And one consequence is that is that we don't get as much investment or support for things like potholes or water systems that are poisoning us or sewer systems that are making us uh, unhealthy. So it's it's a uh, you know
1: you pay attention to one thing and you lose
2: sight of the other.
1: That's a big problem. I'm speaking with Andrew Russell. He is a professor of history and author of the book The Innovation Delusion. How our obsession with the new has disrupted the work that matters most. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one on one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. Making you an old fashioned today with Wild Turkey Bourbon
0: 101. It just really stands up very well in a classic cocktail like the old fashioned. It has that perfect boldness.
1: Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to geico.com to get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit geico.com today. That's geico.com. So, Andrew, it does seem today that there's a very tight connection between innovation and technology, that, that that's where innovation really lives, is, is technologically, and that, you know, innovating A new way to do the sewers it's not very exciting it's again it's like you said the shiny object but it ignores so much of everyday life because it's so shiny
2: yeah so there's you've identified two problems there one is um i think a a way that we've come to talk about technology uh, or tech uh, in the current shorthand it's just dominated by software uh, and digital things when in reality, technology has a much deeper and longer meaning. It it includes all of the things that I was talking about earlier, concrete, steel, glass, Um, but it's really just a way that humans mobilize material things to meet their needs. So one of the things that that we try and accomplish and that people in our field of the history of technology uh, try and accomplish is just to think more holistically about technology. So, um, you know, that, that's a big challenge, but um, I think, you know, we can meet the challenge by just pointing out to people their everyday experience. And so that's, that kind of leads me into the second thing that, that your comment brought out, which is that we know some of these things from our own individual and daily experiences. Say, as a homeowner, I know that if I just keep buying new tools uh, or new, new gadgets for around the house, Um, I'm not paying as much attention to the things that I really need to do, like uh, maybe fix the roof, keep the lawn tidy, uh, patch holes in the driveway, and those sorts of things. So routines for maintenance and and repair and fixing things aren't foreign. Um, They're very familiar. It's just uh, sometimes we need to be reminded of them and to catch them before it really catches up with us.
1: It does seem, though, that because everybody's looking at the shiny object, the new gadgets and all, that that's an opportunity for the roof repairer and the driveway fixer guy, that there are real opportunities there because no one's paying attention to it. Yeah,
2: I think that's right. Um, you know, and I've had the experience, I don't know if you have, that it's awfully hard to find people these days uh, to work on things like that. Some people, my neighbor the other day was saying he thinks it's a, it's a COVID-related thing because so many people are, are stuck in their homes now um, that uh, they're seeing all the, all the deferred maintenance around the house and trying to hire a plumber, an electrician, or get someone to, to fix their roof. Uh, but the data shows that that the problem existed before the pandemic, and and young people are increasingly being steered into professions like software engineers, where they, they think all the glitz and glamour is, um, and being steered away from the trades and other sorts of um, jobs where there's actual need, there's actual demand. So there, there's a structural problem here. Um, which does present itself as an opportunity for uh, contractors and roofers and and all kinds of professionals
1: working in those fields. And so, what are some of the trends you're seeing? You just mentioned one that you know people are are kind of steered away from, like IT and computer maintenance, where where that that's really where the need is because they're steered over here to innovate and create new shiny things. But so, what other kind of trends like that are you seeing, if any?
2: One is the bait and switch that uh, is happening in the fields of engineering and computer science, where students and young people are drawn to those fields um, through the allure of of innovation or building the next new app, for example, uh, or starting a new company. Uh, But the data show that um, software workers and people in computers in general And this is consistent over five decades, um, spend 60 to 80 percent of their time on maintenance, not actually building new things. And so there's a there's a mixed message going out to young people. Um, And that feeds into the second trend that we've seen across a number of fields, which is burnout. Uh, So people who are in maintenance roles in any number of fields, whether it's software maintenance, nursing, nursing, We consider teachers to be uh, maintainers of knowledge and and facilitators of of young people learning. You know, they're they're certainly fulfilling uh, maintenance roles. Um, Those professions experience chronically high levels of burnout and that harms everybody. You know, it harms the product. It harms them, obviously, and it harms uh,
1: communities. And so what are we supposed to do with this? I mean, when you shine a light on it, now what? one goal is to just help people think about
2: putting innovation and maintenance into balance. Because the core of the issue, we think, is that uh, there's too much emphasis on innovation and we're neglecting maintenance and upkeep and care as a result. So first, you know, we're not saying get rid of innovation. We're not neo-Luddites. We're saying let, let's think about this in a more holistic and balanced way. So you know, and that thought process is only a first step. Other than that, uh, there's really two big things. The first it come, has to do with status and respect. And we need to do a better job as a society of paying respect to the people who care for us and maintain us. Um, so that's, you know, that goes for all the professions I mentioned, as well as any number of, of service or, or manual labor professions. It's valuable work, period. Now... When you respect those people and value those people, a society should naturally compensate those people better. And um, therefore, you know, make their lives a little bit easier. Uh, The data show that that people doing maintenance work um, are really struggling to make ends meet. And uh, it could also entice more people to get into those fields and make the contributions that we were talking about before. So, you know, those people are less stressed out and we can find um, more and uh, more willing, more energetic people to do the kinds of work that, that need to be done. It, and the interesting thing is that we've seen this um, play out in, with COVID and with the pandemic um, in, the, in this notion of essential workers. I don't know about your neighborhood, but in my neighborhood, we've had signs up for months now, um, some of them hand-painted by elementary school children. Thank you, essential workers. Thank you, nurses. Thank you, uh, you know, so on. Um, and that's great. So that that helps the status angle of things. What it doesn't help is the compensation angle of things. And it's going to take uh, commitment over the long term, not just a one-shot thing or even a few months thing. Um, to really make those changes that are needed.
1: Why, if what you said earlier is, you know, it's sometimes hard to find those people to fix the driveway or fix the roof, why isn't supply and demand fixing the compensation problem? Boy, that's a good question.
2: Uh, You would think that it would, and in some cases compensation in some of those professions isn't too bad. Uh, So nurses, for example, uh, starting salaries for nurses, I think are in uh, 50 or $60,000, which is pretty good. Um, But I think what's happened is the status issue really pushes people away from those professions. So, um, you know, it's all too common to hear parents say, I really want my son to be a doctor, or I really want my daughter to be an engineer. Um, And for whatever reason... Uh, as, as part of a kind of long cultural heritage uh, of our society, you don't hear them saying as much, I want my daughter to be a welder and I want my son to be a nurse. So I think, you know, some market forces are helping a little bit, but it's certainly not universal. Uh, and I think there's a role for, for government um, to step in as well, state, local um, and federal government to say we value these workers. And we, we've seen some of this with um, the Heroes Act um, and some other actions um, at the federal
1: level. But uh, clearly, there's more that needs to be done. Well, I've noticed a, well, I can think for, uh, right off the top of my head, where I take my car, this independent shop where I take my car. This guy is so busy. He is, I mean, to get an appointment with him is weeks out because he does really good work. His prices are not cheap, but they're, you know, they're fair, but he's so good. And I'm sure his parents never thought, oh, I hope Johnny grows up to fix cars and change the oil. This guy's making a fortune.
2: Yeah, there's, someone pointed out to me a while ago, there's reason why you see uh, these people who are contractors or uh, who own paving or, or trash companies um, driving really nice trucks. So, so they do make out pretty good in some cases, you know, if you run the business right. Um, and, and you're, and you're, you know, you do the, I think the point is that those people are successful because they've paid attention precisely to the sorts of things I'm talking about. They're reliable. Um, they pay attention to the little things. They're not drawn away to the new shiny object. Um, they're not thinking, oh, I'm going to make a, a bunch of money as a, as a day trader or a, or an <laughs> app developer. And they just stick to it. Um, you know, why more people don't do that is, is, uh, is a really good question. Um, we're trying to actually do some research on this question right now. We're working with a with a psychology professor um, to build some surveys and to try and get answers to some of these questions. You know, why do people neglect maintenance, and why do people get steered away from uh, professions that are perceived to be uh, lower status because they're doing more routine work? I think that's don't you think that's
1: exactly the answer.
2: Yeah, you know, people, it, it depends, you know, and that's why I think we need more research. In part, yeah, people do like to do uh, creative stuff. and um, But, I, you know, back to what I was saying before, if you ask a computer science major who thought they were going into it to, to have the tools to start a new company and, and they're actually working at a help desk or, uh, or just filling like debugging tickets in an open source platform... Um, you would think that they'd look back at their choices and wonder what kind of bill of goods they've been sold.
1: <laughs> well, but and also, I mean, at a cocktail party, you know, people don't want someone to say, "So, what does your what does your son do?" Well, he's in maintenance. yeah you know
2: it's a there's an image problem um we're you know working to fix it at one point i joked uh, so the book that we've got has a broken light bulb on the cover is a indicator of uh, something wrong um at one point i joked that we should write a book about maintenance that had um like the abs of uh, of Cristiano Ronaldo or some famous athlete on the cover to show that you know to illustrate that maintenance is sexy, hard work is sexy. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's a t- it's a tough topic for exactly that reason because of the
1: perceptions. Well, in many ways, this is an image problem, right? I mean, people want to be the the creator, the innovator. I want my son to grow up and be a surgeon or some very highfalutin sounding profession and at the cocktail party, you know, what, what does your son do? Well, he's in maintenance. Oh, it, it just doesn't, doesn't have the right ring. I, you know, I, we will
2: concede that's, that's a tough nut to crack at a cocktail party. Um, especially when people are moving and shaking and trying to impress, but, right. um, but the, you know, th- there's no better time than the present to really, cut through the fog of the buzzwords
1: and and think about what is really important. Well, and not only you, but guys like Mike Rowe talk about, you know, the importance of hard work, dirty jobs. Not everybody needs a college degree. And I think it's an important conversation to have. Andrew Russell has been my guest. He's a professor of history and the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at SUNY Polytechnic Institute and author of the book, The Innovation Delusion, how Our Obsession with the New Has Disrupted the Work That Matters Most. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks for being a guest here today, Andrew. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. It's fun talking to you.
0: Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, or Fire TV and start watching now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free.
1: When I think of physics, I think of physics as the science or the study of, of how things work, of how matter interacts with other matter and people and time and space and all of that. And when you dig under the surface, it's really interesting. And it's important to understand some of this. One person who is really into physics is Dr. Charles Liu. He is an associate professor at the City University of New York and author of The Handy Physics Answer Book. Hey, Charles. Welcome to Something You Should Know.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having me, Mike.
1: So clearly, you love physics. And interestingly, I've known a couple of other physics professors and and they're very passionate about it.
0: Physics is fundamentally really cool and a lot of fun. and it, it just happens to be useful and important. It runs our entire uh, modern civilization, really. But even all kinds of science in general, it's all about curiosity and, gee, how does this work? And when I was younger, as a kid, I was like, how does this work? And uh, I just had a chance to go find out. And as life went on, I realized that in high school and then in college and and then in graduate school and later. It's like, you can actually make a living asking questions and trying to figure out the answers and and sharing that with people. And that's really all it was at the beginning.
1: So to prove your point that physics (laughs) is cool, give me something just as as cool as you can make it about physics that either I may not know or I probably forgot from high school.
0: (laughs) Well, okay. Uh, I am an astronomer, uh, technically astrophysicist, so I think a lot about stars and galaxies and things like that. Uh, One of the really coolest things that has direct relevance to us here on Earth is that if the sun happened to just disappear uh, in an instant, it would take eight minutes before we would even know about it, before the gravity difference would affect us, before the light would suddenly go dark, Uh, our world and our universe is so spread out and so widely distributed that things take time to go from one place to the next, whether it's energy or matter or people or anything like that. And so that time lag creates all kinds of strange and interesting things, like the general theory of relativity, uh, which we use when we're working on our GPS, uh, or supermassive black holes colliding, things like that.
1: So when I hear the word physics, I immediately think of like high school physics, like motion and inertia and momentum and, and those kinds of things. The
0: physics you describe in high school, yes, is indeed. Uh, it's objects that are colliding, hitting each other, baseball, hitting a bat, things like that. But then we get into things like magnets and electricity, And here now you have particles that are so small that we can't see them. And yet they contain and can transfer so much energy that they can light up the world at night. And then we realize that these little particles, electrons, are just one kind of many other kinds of particles that build up all of matter and energy. Uh, Put them all together, you start dealing with things like heat and light and Uh, then objects aren't just going in straight lines. They go around in circles. So you have rotation. From that, you get orbits. You get disks. And it just gets more and more complicated as time goes on. Those little tiny bits, uh, the quantum mechanics starts to explain the motion of the microscopic universe, and weird things start happening. Suddenly, we can have cell phones. Suddenly, we can have satellites orbiting in space. And suddenly we realize that there are black holes out in the universe where the gravitational distortion around them is so great that once you enter their sphere of influence, you can never come out. Uh, That's where all the physics gets very,
1: very exciting. So let's talk about some of the physics of everyday life. And and a good example, I guess, is is the reason a golf ball has dimples. That's all physics, right?
0: (laughs) Think about how a ping-pong ball travels. Compare that to how a golf ball travels. A ping pong ball doesn't have dimples, but it's very hollow and it's very light. And so it's affected by air in a particular way. Now, when you have a golf ball, say, that was smooth, you would send it through the air. But again, it would be affected by the air that it's traveling through in a very straightforward way. If you add dimples, all of a sudden the airflow has been changed and a ball can travel literally much, much further. And not only that, when you want to curve a golf ball, you want to slice it. uh, Well, you don't want to slice golf balls usually, right? But if you want to drop something just in a location, uh, golf ball dimples actually help you do that. So uh, these little tiny things, uh, these little dimples in the golf ball, make the sport of golf that much more interesting.
1: Wait, so if, if I were to drive a golf ball that had no dimples exactly the same as I drove one that did... What would I see different?
0: First of all, the golf ball wouldn't lift as high. If you're hitting a golf ball with a a slight backspin, what happens is that the air that goes over the top of the ball uh, moves in a direction opposite to the motion of the ball. And so it creates a a pressure difference that lifts the ball higher that allows it to go further. Uh, Another thing is that uh, without dimples, the flow of air around the ball is very, very smooth. It creates a a kind of a wake behind it, the same way that uh, a boat going through a a pond might also create a wake behind it. So that actually will drag the ball and make it travel less far. When you have those dimples, they break up the air layer, so you reduce the drag, uh, and then you have this extra lift that happens. So the golf ball would go much farther with the dimples than without
1: Why aren't we supposed to put metal objects in a microwave?
0: The way a microwave oven heats food is that it sends radiation at a specific wavelength that causes the water molecules in your food to vibrate very, very fast. That vibration and rotation causes uh, heat to be released. And so you wind up heating your food that way. You're literally changing the energy in the radiation into heat energy uh, and increased temperature in your food. That radiation, when it comes in contact with metal, will wind up creating sparks. And so if you have an electric charge running inside your microwave oven, um, eventually you could damage the oven. or You could blow out the motor or you could even start a fire. Uh, but when you put that compact disc in there, it's sufficiently small and isolated. If you just watch it for just a few seconds, uh, all the metal that's sort of in the disc winds up sparking and arcing. And the disc is destroyed, unfortunately. But it's kind of like a fireworks show inside a microwave oven.
1: So here's a question, and I find this really interesting, because I've asked people uh-huh. to explain the difference. Because we hear in commercials all the time about the new... F- f- 4G, f- 3G, and and oh yes, and nobody knows what it means. And, and, but, but companies brag about it as if we do, but I have no idea what it really means.
0: This is one of those things where I think people like using jargon in marketing and just to confuse us, right? Uh, yeah, what is 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G? The G just stands for generation. So what generation wireless network are you using? It's not actually a specific technology necessarily uh, shift, although there are lots of different improvements going forward. But the generations basically show you what or how much signal can travel through the wireless system at any given time. So uh, early on, the the first cell phones uh, the, you know, the ones that go in your suitcase, right? Um, did you ever own one of those? I, I didn't own one of those, but they were big. <laughs> uh, they were first-generation devices. You could only make voice calls, right? Eventually, you could have digital signals, which wound up with 2G, and then 3G came out around 20 years ago, and that was that, the sort of generation that made wireless take off. Right. going forward with all of our iPods and, and, and uh, wireless phones and so on. And about 10 years ago, uh, we got up to 4G. Uh, and these are broadband networks, and these uh, allowed us to do things like watch videos uh, on the screen uh, of our phones. And so 5G um, is supposed to be coming online now. There are some places. Uh, this is such a dense and fast way of moving wireless information that you can cover something like a million wireless devices per, per square mile, okay? And that's uh, at 10 times more than 4G can currently uh, support. So it's not some newfangled uh, technology that can affect us in some um, unusual way, you know, cause cancer or things like that. Uh, But instead, it's just a demonstration of how much more wireless computing we can do. Uh, So 4G was about one-tenth the speed of 5G, 3G was about one-tenth the speed of 4G, and so on.
1: But isn't there some big concern about 5G?
0: Yes. The, The concern about 5G is not actually the concern that sometimes makes it into popular media like it can cause uh, disease or it it can somehow injure you, right? 5G is a little more complicated in in its concern in that because you can support so many devices, you can put wireless signals into just about everything, not just your phone, uh, not just your thermostat, not just your, uh, say, uh, computer-powered or Internet-powered speaker, right? Oh, you know, please turn on my phone or please turn on this. You can put a wireless uh, link in your refrigerator. You can put a wireless link uh, in, in your light bulbs, for that matter, uh, in your lights. And with all of that Internet connectivity, the security of your systems becomes a challenge. Uh, Somebody standing outside uh, of your house, for example, uh, with the proper equipment could uh, actually damage or otherwise affect negatively uh, your home devices or your security. Uh, You can sometimes liken wireless uh, communications uh, to having uh, a big hole in your wall. If you put a door uh, there, you can lock the door. Uh, But if there are 100 holes in your walls, then do you have to put a lock on all 100 doors? Or do you have to make sure all your windows are always closed? So it's the matter of so much information being available all the time that we have to think about making sure that all this stuff is secure. But in terms of whether or not it'll harm us or deform our brains or something, that's not going to happen. This is not a scientific concern.
1: What's the physics behind when you rub a balloon on the wall, it sticks?
0: When you're rubbing a balloon, what you're basically doing is changing the balance of electrons. More electrons or fewer electrons wind up on the balloon than your hair, for example. And so then you build up this static charge, And then when you put it up against a wall, that difference in how much uh, electron density there is on the balloon compared to the wall can uh, create a force that holds the balloon to the wall, defying gravity. If you think about how powerful gravity is and how it always keeps us held down to the earth, even if we jump up, we still eventually land back down unless we have a rocket or something. Uh, having those balloons uh, defy gravity just because you rub it in your hair for a few seconds is a small demonstration of just how powerful
1: electricity is. I know a lot of people say uh, that it drives them nuts when they hear their voice recorded because it doesn't sound like, like it on the recording as it does in their head. And why is that?
0: Sound is a kind of wave that travels through objects, and uh, media, like air, water, or bone. So when I listen to myself talk, the sound that's coming from my vocal cords isn't just going through the air, out of my mouth, into my ears. It's also going up my throat. It's going into my jaw, into my, the rest of my skull, into my sinus cavities, and it's creating this sort of resonant tone And it's sending extra tones into our ears from the other direction. So uh, we always sound a little bit more uh, sonorous and resonant when we talk to ourselves. When you talk into a microphone, all the microphone is hearing is what's going out of your mouth and into the microphone. So when you hear it back, you're getting an incomplete translation of what you have just produced. So um, it's kind of cool. It's kind of depressing sometimes, though. I listen to myself and I go, whoa, that's what I sound like. And then I try to sound a little bit more like this. and uh, It still doesn't work, really, but it's kind of fun to try.
1: But in fact, that's how you sound to other people.
0: Actually, it's even a little bit more complicated than that because when other people listen to you, their ears are also getting your uh, other tones, and so forth. The microphone, as you know, is an electronic device that doesn't pick up all the frequencies. So sometimes those microphones, uh, uh, unless they're really, really, really good, only pick up a small uh, fraction of all the frequencies that actually are emanating from your voice. So a person listening live will actually hear more subtlety in your voice than hearing through a microphone or even hearing you on a recording. Uh, and, and so that's something to keep in mind, too. So even though you may sound not quite uh, as good to yourself through a microphone, other people may be hearing you a little bit better than you're hearing yourself.
1: You know, it's hard to imagine driving a car without a GPS system. You, you'd feel kind of, I don't know, lost or disconnected. But it wasn't all that long ago that cars didn't have them. And it really is fascinating how GPS works. So can, can you explain that, please?
0: Well, GPS stands for the Global Positioning System, and it was developed for military purposes in the 1990s, but it was so useful for everyday life that it's been declassified since, and of course now it's a big part of our lives. Uh, as long as you have a couple dozen satellites that are orbiting around the Earth, at any given time, your GPS device can send out a signal to those satellites, and they come back and broadcast to you basically exactly what time it is on their receivers, what um, position they think they are, and then from that, the computer, your GPS system triangulates two or three or more signals and allows you to know uh, within actually just a foot or two of where you are on the surface of the Earth. Uh, It's a real triumph of engineering and the basic physics of the general theory of relativity.
1: So my image of physics, and I think this is the image a lot of people have, is that there isn't a whole lot new, like we've nailed physics, the heavy hitters in physics like Galileo and Newton and Einstein. You know, they're, they've come, they've gone, they're long since dead, and there isn't a, we don't hear a lot of new things about physics.
0: Galileo and Newton and those heavy hitters did amazing things hundreds of years ago. They established uh, what, say, 99% of what we do in daily life is, is like, right? They understand now, like, when we walk, what happens? When we move, what happens? When we turn on a light switch, what happens? Our lives are being continually enriched and increased by things we don't know. Uh, One thing I like to tell people is that it's good to know stuff, but it's better to want to know stuff. Because every time we are not satisfied with what we already know, but keep pushing the boundaries, the more we learn. Um, I'll just give the example of quantum computing. A quantum computer uh, right now is in its infant stages. We don't know at all if it will become practical in the years and decades to come but if it does it will make all the 5g and the gps and the waves and stuff look uh like we were standing still uh that imagine how our lives would change if we understood that um there's things about the universe we're still just barely learning just within the past few years we figured out that black holes when they smash into each other They create ripples in space and time, uh, things that are warping uh, our reality uh, all throughout the universe. And if we started to really know how space and time behave in a real fundamental way that right now we just are barely scratching the surface of, imagine our ability to travel to distant worlds or or even to go from here to, uh, say, a relative's house instantaneously. Um, all the things that you see, for example, on Star Trek or Star Wars or things like that, they all, if they ever could exist, have to be imagined first. And then you take the knowledge that, say, Galileo and Newton figured out centuries ago and mix that with modern questioning and uh, asking what these things are, you know, what they could become, and then it'll wind up being reality someday, I hope. Uh, One of the most empowering and and courageous things that we can say uh, to ourselves and to others is very simply, I don't know. And when we do that, we open ourselves to the possibilities of the future, which are so exciting and so much fun.
1: Well, it's like you said at the beginning, it's really all about curiosity. I mean, if you want to know how something works or why something did this instead of that, the answer is very often physics, and it's really interesting to dig deep. Charles Liu has been my guest. He is an associate professor at the City University of New York, and he's author of the book, The Handy Physics Answer Book, and you'll find a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. If you ever have trouble falling asleep sometime, you might want to try to remember the 4-7-8 technique. It's a breathing method that is meant to combat anxiety, restlessness, and the other enemies of a good night's sleep. The actual technique is quite simple. Just inhale for 4 seconds, hold your breath for 7 seconds, and exhale for 8 seconds. 4, 7, 8. Just like counting sheep, measuring out your breaths gives your brain something to do so it isn't obsessing about your hectic day or the day ahead. Taking slow, deliberate breaths has also been proven to reduce stress. In humans, deep breathing has long been central to mindfulness practices like yoga and meditation. The 4-7-8 breathing technique functions as both a distraction from your thoughts and a way to combat any anxious sensations that could be keeping you awake. And that is something you should know. If you like this podcast, you really should subscribe. Subscribing is easy, it's free, and then you never have to remember to come back and get episodes because they are delivered right to you. You most likely are listening to this podcast on some kind of platform like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, wherever. And there's a subscribe button, pretty obvious subscribe button. You just push it and you're a subscriber. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.